the wasps. Suddenly they were on him. He was 10, the cricket game abandoned, but already drizzled over his limbs, plunging into his ears, his eyes, trying to break into his body. The children stood around him, screaming, stamping them out, though he didn't howl or stagger even. He was shaking his head, moving his arms, swiping in wide semicircles in some horrible dance, just blind panic, adrenaline. His hair was on fire. His dark boyfriend lit by their frenzy as these maniacal creatures, this colony loaded with pheromones, ruffled round his neck. I was crying, held back by an aunt till someone brought the hosepipe and drowned them all. His lips were blue, red, swollen, the ball still in the nest as the sober boy stood dripping into the soil, into their soused bodies spent. Uh, that was a difficult poem. Uh, I've just finished. Um, everyone has, I think, a wasp memory. Those strange childhood memories that resonate like bee hum in the back of our adult minds. And sometimes we're curious enough, as poets often are, to reappraise these objects, pick them up, turn them over, and try to make sense of the now. So um, I used to be a human rights lawyer, and now I write poems for a living. And that's been my occupation, or some might call devotion, for eight years. And I'm often asked about this transition between these two supposed alien worlds. And it's something I don't really talk about because the explanations are quite complex. And to be honest, I don't have all the answers. So this conversation is an attempt to sort of reach into and unlock a room which seems as evasive and mysterious to me as the poem itself. Um, I often ask myself, how does one move from the rational world of legal rules, precision, clear black lines to a new creative field which now I inhabit, this ephemeral art, a world of uncertainty and not knowingness, which is actually, I think, the foundational principle of poem building. The poet Bill Herbert said, poetry lives by the principle of the periphery, and it's standing at that border that I have dispensed with certainty. I've also dispensed with a living wage, but that's uh, another story. So let's reappraise a little bit. So I think it's important to sort of think about my biography. I've always read poetry. I was born in the UK to immigrant parents, Punjabi Sikhs, um, who arrived at Heathrow, moved three miles down the road to Hounslow, and that's where I grew up. And my exposure to the poetry canon was like everybody else. I read Ted Hughes, The Romantics. 
And although English was not my mother tongue, Punjabi is, I only write in English. And when it came to it, like any good second generation offspring whose parents were anxious about their children having bankable professions, I decided to study law. I trained as a, a civil rights lawyer um, in West London. And I want to say something about the first case that I was exposed to in May 1993, because I think it's important, because I think it shaped me. A couple came in for urgent legal advice, and um, I was sitting at my little desk next to the partner. And the names of the couple were Doreen and Neville Lawrence. And it was my second day in the office. I was a rookie, a trainee, trainee lawyer. And I was asked to run up and down the stairs to the photocopier to copy documents. And um, you might know that their son, Stephen, was murdered at a bus stop in Eltham. And I remember getting home that evening and thinking about what Doreen Lawrence said about being absolutely convinced that the reason Stephen was, was um, murdered was because it was a racist murder and the police didn't care enough. And I thought at the age of 22 that I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And so I decided that I would train as, I would train as a human rights lawyer so it's probably no surprise to hear that I went off and I decided to go to Liberty and work at Liberty, a human rights organization. And I had a sort of strange sort of specialism, actually. Um, euphemistically, you could call it dignity cases, but a lot of cases involving death, um, death in custody cases, right to die cases, cases involving destitution. Um, it sounds like a punishment, but actually I, I loved what I did. And one thing I think is really important is a human rights lawyer, I think, requires a huge amount of emotional energy and empathy, and I don't think it's possible to do the job without it. So fast forward, um, I got pregnant with my twins in my early 30s. I was on maternity leave. And I started reading contemporary poetry because somebody sent me a box of poems and I was reading uh, writers such as Meniza Alvey, Alice Oswald, Mimi Calvati, and I was struck by how creaturely these poems were in the sense that the language didn't behave itself. In fact, it was a real antidote to the language I'd been immersed in for a decade. And it's interesting because I noticed that poetry is very good at insinuation and its surface very open to interference, which is the complete opposite, of course, of legal language and discourse. Everything about poetic language moves away from the absolute and the fixed, and yet it is able to give voice to our universal pangs. And I also still feel that in poetry, one strangely can feel simultaneously foreign and at home at the same time. So I decided that I was kind of hooked and I decided I wanted to write poetry. And um, 
after a while, I decided that I was going to stu study um, at the University of East Anglia, which is a, has got a great writing course. And whilst I was there, um, I was very reluctant to send poems into magazines because I just didn't feel like I had the courage to, but I did send poems into competitions and I won a, um, a competition uh, for a poem called The Hummingbird, which I'll read to you in a minute. And um, the reason that poem is quite important is I feel like it's like my coming out poem because for a long, long time I'd been, I had this kind of secret furtive activity which was writing poems which I hadn't really spoken to people about and suddenly I was um, having to explain to people that, you know, what I, what I did in secret. And I remember I was going to have to, uh, I was thinking I was going to have to talk to my quite traditional parents and tell them that their daughter, who they, and they, they thought they had produced a lawyer, which was a useful kind of person in society, not as useful as a doctor or an accountant, um, but, you know, still fairly useful. And now um, I was going to be pursuing this, like, the most useless activity and uh, not only that, the, the poems I was, I was writing were, um, one of them that they'd read was an erotic poem. So the subject matter was the most useless poem. Um, and subject matter, so I remember thinking that this was really interesting and it was a kind of coming out poem. So I'm gonna read you that poem. And um, actually it's called Hummingbird. And to this day, I think my mother still thinks it's about hummingbird. Hummingbird. Ask the stems in the glass to bend. Let your fingers fly. A momentary grasp. Slip into spaces. Surge in and out of folds where breasts begin to curve and rise. Be God. Press your curing skin to mine. Dissolve and pronounce me. Let my eyes fall out and embed in the carpet, rooting. My hands arrange the air for you, braiding. Reluctant sun at the window, open your eyes. Burn through the haze with your severe love. Slide open the bone zip of my spine. Anoint each rigid peak, take my limbs and fold me over. Here's my mouth hummingbird, linger there and hold my breath. Um, four months later, in 2012, my younger brother died suddenly after a long depressive illness. And I was writing poetry, I was still doing my masters and I was confronted early in my poetic career about whether or not I would write about it and whether or not I could even process it in my work. And I have to say that at that time, I was using poetry a lot. I was deeply immersed in the poetry world. Lots of people sent me poems. Um, I gave pe people poems. I gave my family poems. And there was one particular poem that became a sort of touchstone poem for me, and that was a poem by Denise Riley called A Part Song. And the poem begins with a question, which is, you principle of song, what are you for? But I also in my reading, discovered that something else about poetry, which I think I always knew, which is that poetry is the perfect vehicle for telling the truth. 
And actually the lyric poem, in a way, functions as a container for almost unbearable emotional pain. Why is it that certain things can only be held in a tensile line of a poem, can only be answered in a poetic form? And I find this idea of empathy that vibrates in so many poems and is universality really interesting because that's what brought me to human rights law in the first place. And I also think this is the reason why we must have a diverse and truly representative culture so that a shared experience can be slipped from the writer to the reader's ear towards a confirmation of shared experience. Human rights are characterized by the universality and human beings have these rights by virtue of being earthlings, human. And the role of human rights laws is to sustain this universality and this inviolability. So there's no easy answers here, but just an attempt to feel my way through and to find some fragile footholds. I'm always astonished that despite Despite the most inhospitable and unkind soil, poems grow and survive and thrive. And somehow there is no culture on earth that can live without its poetry or song. And that's the terrain that I'm currently in. Thanks for listening. Thank you.